Good afternoon. Glad to uh, be here with you all this morning. Thankful for this opportunity we have to worship together. Glad we got to honor our seniors at, um, at lunch today. That was great. A lot of good food, it looked like. But um, we're going to talk about something this afternoon that we read a lot about, we talk a lot about. We talk about it really every worship service, I think sometimes without fully grasping the force of the language behind what we're saying. And that is this concept of anointing. We're going to be talking about the anointing of the Lord. And not just Jesus' being anointed, but also just the trajectory throughout the Bible of what anointing is, uh, why it's important, and how it even connects to us and why it matters for us even in the first place. I think anointing is one of those things where you, it's one of those things that is a cultural phenomenon that really isn't present anymore, so it's not something that's usually on our minds, but it was extremely significant to the people of Jesus' day, and we're going to look at some of those things uh, this morning, evening, afternoon. So first, the background of anointing, and this is a quote that pretty much sums it up very well from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. In the ancient Near East, the ritual of ceremonially covering a person or object with scented oil or other liquid symbolized a transfer of sanctity from a deity to that person or object. It was thus considered a sacramental or consecrating act. So Israel wasn't the only culture that practiced this practice of pouring scented oil usually over uh, somebody's head as a kind of transference of some kind of authority from a deity to an individual or even to objects. In the ancient Near East, there were also non-religious anointings. In Isaiah 21.5, the prophet tells their princes to anoint their shields with oil. And some think this might be symbolic. Most likely they had leather shields and that oil would get them ready for battle. There was also oil used in cosmetics, anointing used in cosmetics. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking about fasting, he says, don't fast like the hypocrites who make their faces look a certain way and everybody knows they're fasting. Instead, wake up, wash your face, anoint your face with oil and go about your day normally and your Father will see that and he will bless you. So it wasn't just religious, uh, there was anointing just really in everyday life, and it was present in many cultures. The Egyptians anointed not their pharaohs, but they did anoint their high officials who served in Pharaoh's court. The Hittites, which were an ancient group of people near the Israelites, anointed kings with a holy oil of kingship that they had, a special oil for that. And then, of course, great leaders in Mesopotamia had statues made of them at their death which later would be anointed by their successors. So this was a common cultural phenomenon. Pretty much everybody in the area at that time understood uh, the significance behind anointing. But we're going to look at, for a little bit, the biblical purpose of it. So that's how the culture at large used it back in times of the Old Testament. But what was its significance in the Bible? Usually when you read about anointing in the Old Testament, it was to signify a certain individual's God-ordained role in a particular office or for a particular task. And it was often even related to God's Holy Spirit being with one of these chosen leaders. So a couple of examples. The priests and the holy things of the tabernacle were anointed with oil. Aaron, the high priest, and then his descendants 
were anointed with oil when they became priests. And then Exodus 30, 26, the whole tent of meeting was anointed with oil, significant of or signifying God saying, okay, this is my place, these are my people, and this is where I'm going to be worshipped. Likewise, kings were anointed. In 2 Samuel 5, 3, you read about the official, if you want to call it that, anointing of David, not when he's at home with his family tending the sheep, but in front of public witnesses where he's anointed with oil and then he's made king officially in the eyes of Israel. And then in 1 Kings 1.39, Solomon is anointed with a horn of oil. And then they all shout, long live King Solomon. And that's how he started his kingship. It's kind of like a coronation. Places where there's still monarchies, monarchies today. There's this big ceremony. The crown is passed on to the next descendant. And then they sit on their throne and it's like officially beginning their task. Anointing was seen in a similar way. Prophets were also anointed. And there's some debate whether or not this was symbolic or literal and actual physical. There's at least one case where it was physical. In 1 Kings 19.16, if you remember, Elijah was running from Jezebel. And he has this point where he is, uh, for lack of a better term, depressed. And he just wants to die. And he's out in the desert. And God gets him up, gets him something to eat, gets him moving. And he gives him a task. He's to go back, he's going to anoint Israel's next king, and he's going to anoint his successor, Elisha. And that was part of what he had to do, but Elijah most likely was anointed, and then he anointed his successor, Elisha, to be a prophet after him. Then twice in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles and Psalm 105, you have God commanding people, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. So prophets in the eyes of God were God's anointed ones. They were people who were given a specific task from God. They were made to do that task or given the opportunity to. And there was this relationship, this transference of authority from God to these individuals. So priests, kings, and prophets were all anointed uh, in the Bible. Anointing, oh, wrong button. Okay. Anointing was also a sign of hospitality. Think about in Psalm 23, 5. There's that imagery of a shepherd, but then there's that imagery of the Lord being a host for David. And he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And there was a practice in the ancient Near East where if somebody was a special guest in your house, this is part of what you would do to them. You would anoint them. And it signified that you were their host, they were your guests, and you cared for them, and were going to take care of them. Also in the life of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is anointed by... Uh, a woman, a uh, woman who's described as a sinner, at while he's eating with some Pharisees, Luke seven thirty eight, standing behind him at his feet weeping, this woman began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And then Jesus catches some flack for that from the Pharisees, and his response in Luke seven forty six is, "You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment." So he says, you were not a gracious host to me. You did not extend to me this hospitality. But this woman who you call a sinner went above and beyond. She anointed my feet with ointment. So it wasn't just for people in leadership positions. It was also a sign of hospitality. And it was also used for medicinal purposes. In Isaiah 1.6, God is describing the injury that's going to come to his people because of their sin. And he says there, from the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. 
but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. So oil was used as uh, um, almost a kind of medicine, as a salve or a physical thing you could put on yourself to help your wounds. In Mark 6, 13, it's said of Jesus and his disciples that they went throughout the wilderness, casting out demons and anointing sick people with oil. So this anointing of oil was part of a medicinal practice in Jesus' time. And of course, James 14, 5, 14, if any of you are sick, call the elders for prayer, and they may anoint your head with oil. Again, likely a reference to a medicinal purpose. So that's anointing, big picture. God anointed special people for a special task. It was a part of the culture and hospitality and medicine, but it takes on a special emphasis in the life of Jesus. There's special emphasis in the significance of Jesus' anointing. And this is where sometimes we miss this. Jesus is the Christ. We sing about this. We pray about this. We talk about this. But when we say the Christ, we're saying that Jesus is the anointed one. And that was so significant to Jesus and his contemporaries uh, that we'll see it was often preached uh, about him early on in his ministry. So Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. I want us to think about that whenever we say Christ. What does that mean? Jesus is the anointed one of God. And this was a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus' prophecy declared that an anointed one, a Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek, would save God's people. In Psalm 2, there's the ruckus of these worldly nations raging against God. And it says that they have taken counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And when you read down further in that psalm in verse 7, whoever the anointed is is described as a son of God. In verse 12, it's even they're commanded to kiss the son lest he become angry. So in Psalm 2, there is this vision of this anointed person who would come and dash the nations to pieces. And that, of course, that is officially fulfilled in Jesus. In Psalm 45, 7, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And in Hebrews 1, 9, this is referenced, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then in Daniel 9, 25 through 26, you have the 70 weeks, you have the anointed priest that comes before the destruction of the temple and who saves his people as he dies. And that, of course, likewise, is a vision of Jesus. So think about if you are alive, you're a Jew in Israel before Jesus comes. You know that anointing is a big deal. You've probably been anointed by somebody. You've anointed other people. But you're waiting for this ultimate fulfillment of the practice of anointing. Because you're familiar with the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, you know that there's somebody coming to save you and your people, and they're going to be described as an anointed one. And we see that ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was identified as the awaited anointed one and proclaimed to be so. If you're taking notes, I hope you'll jot these down. If not, that's fine. But listen to these verses. John 1, 40 through 41. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So think about this. Peter, one of the most influential apostles of Jesus, how did he start following Jesus? Because his brother told him, Look, we found the anointed one. And Peter knew what that meant, and it interested him enough to go 
and to follow him. And then throughout the book of Acts, again and again, Jesus is preached as the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And again, that meant something uh, extremely important to those people. In Acts 2.36, the first recorded gospel sermon, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Part of the first gospel sermon ever preached, as far as we know, that led to the conversion of these souls in Jerusalem, revolved around the fact that Jesus was the anointed one. It was a big deal to the Jews, and it was a big deal to God. In Acts 9.22, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Again, proving that Jesus was the anointed one. Everybody was waiting for this anointed one to come. And Saul, we know him as Paul, says, look, he's here. This is who he is. This is what he's doing. And again and again, Acts 17, Acts 18, a couple of different times, Paul is testifying to the fact that Jesus is the long-awaited anointed one. And that was extremely significant for the people to whom he was preaching. And we see this fulfilled in the, New, in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus. I want to look at how Jesus is the ultimate anointed one. Because he's not anointed with oil, like the kings and like the priests and like the prophets. Instead, he's anointed with the power of God and the Holy Spirit. Everything about Jesus' anointing is really next level. In John 1.32, John the baptizer bears witness and says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. And the significance of the Holy Spirit remaining on Jesus and allowing him to have the power of God. In Acts 10, 37 through 38, Peter is preaching about Jesus. He says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. You see, Jesus isn't anointed just with scented oil, he's scented with the Holy Spirit. And with God's power. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, and God was with him. The significance of Jesus' anointing is really next level. It's a notch above anything anybody expected. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit and with the power of God. And think about that passage that was read for us. Jesus sits down in the synagogue, he opens the scribe of Isaiah, he starts reading, and it's this passage about being anointed. The Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus had a specific purpose from God, and he was able to do it. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. So you have this group of people waiting for this anointed one. They're not sure where he is, when he's coming. And Jesus comes and he says, look, this anointed one you read about in your scriptures, it's me. And that's part of why some people hated him so much. But remember, again, who were anointed. It was the prophets, the priests, and the kings. Those who were the people who mainly were anointed in Israel. And think about this. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all those things. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, Moses says, Wait, there's going to be one who comes among your brothers who's a prophet like me, but greater than me. And he's going to tell you all these things, and anyone who doesn't follow him will be kicked out of the people of Israel. 
And then we see when Jesus was here, he told of things to come. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He's the fulfillment of the prophets of the Old Testament. And just like the prophets of old, he was anointed by God. Likewise, priests were anointed. Jesus is the ultimate priest. He's our high priest. In Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it talks about our high priest who's passed through the heavens, who's been exalted, who is able to sympathize with sinners, yet without sin. That's Jesus. He's the ultimate priest for us, pleading our case at the throne of God. The Hebrews author calls Jesus a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and then goes and proves how the priestly order of Melchizedek is way better than the priestly order of the Levites and Aaron. He's the ultimate priest, and just like priests had to be anointed, Jesus likewise was anointed, not with oil, but by the power of God and by the Holy Spirit. Likewise, Jesus is the ultimate king. There's a lot of passage you can go for this, but in Revelation 17, 14, I love this image that's given to Jesus. Speaking of those who reject God, it says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Prophets, priests, and kings, people anointed under the old law, all fulfilled in Jesus. He's the ultimate version of each one of those jobs, and he was anointed with an anointing, not of oil, but of God's power and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus anointed Jesus is the anointed one of God who came with a God-given purpose. And that purpose was to save mankind from their sins. Luke 19.10, Jesus says, I have come uh, to save sinners, essentially. Uh, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's his purpose. That's his God, the Father, given purpose to come to earth. And therefore, he has this anointing of the power of God and the Holy Spirit. So it's extremely important. And what just was almost a cultural phenomenon in the Old Testament, what was a part of just almost a coronation ceremony, turns into one of the proofs for Jesus being here, who he said he was, sent from God for the purpose of saving mankind through his own sacrificial death. So Jesus' anointing is extremely significant, and we ought to be thankful that he came, that he was who God sent, and that he did God's task, and that God was with him, And he did what was necessary for our salvation. But it doesn't stop there. I'd ask you to turn to 1 John 2 in your Bibles, if you don't mind. 1 John 2. First John 2, and we'll begin in verse 18. And we see that the anointing isn't just for Jesus, it's not just for people in the Old Testament, but we can be anointed through God's word. And there's a lot of talk in the religious world about being, you know, this direct anointing from the Holy Spirit, uh, miraculous. I'm not talking about any of that. We can have an anointing of knowledge that comes through the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the word and our obedience to it. Look in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 18 through verse 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And that goes against the popular view of the Antichrist, right? He's one individual who comes and ruins everything. John says, no, there's multiple Antichrists, and they had already come in the first century. 
Therefore, he says, we know that it is the last hour. It's the last dispensation. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So these antichrists, we're not sure what they do yet, uh, but they used to be a part of the Christian community, but they never really uh, were. He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He who denies that Jesus is the anointed one. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. There were these opponents in John's audience who were coming and saying that Jesus is not the Christ. He's not the anointed one, at least not in the flesh. And the result was, John says, not only have they lost fellowship with Jesus, they've lost fellowship with God the Father. They've lost fellowship with those who follow uh, the true teaching of God's word. They thought they had this special spiritual knowledge and denied that Jesus was the Christ in the flesh. But John reminds his audience, the inspired apostle John, the beloved apostle of the Lord, reminds his audience that he was there. He saw Jesus in the flesh. He spent time with him. He leaned on his bosom while he supped at the Last Supper. John says, look, I've seen him. I've spent time with him. And he's telling his audience, if you received this doctrine from me and the apostles, you don't need to be afraid and go into what these people are telling you. And it may have been a miraculous measure in the first century, but now we know this truth. We know this apostolic witness as inspired by the Holy Spirit through God's word. The apostles were guided into all truth by the Holy Spirit, John 16, 13. And therefore, if John's audience heard the gospel from him, they could be sure that they had received the truth. And the same thing is true for us today. If we follow the inspired apostolic teaching as recorded in the scriptures, we can know everything we need to know about Jesus, his life, and his work. If we stick with the Bible and allow it to guide our lives, allow it to guide what we believe in regards to God and Jesus, we will be blessed and we will not be uh, torn away by false doctrines that exist out there in the world. We have this anointing, if you will, of knowledge through the word of God as delivered by the Holy Spirit to us through the apostles. And because we've been anointed with knowledge through God's word, we can know that Jesus is the anointed one. And it's hard to pick up sometimes if you're not looking at the original languages, but God is, sorry, John, God through John is making a play on words. He talks about through the anointing, we can know that Jesus is the Christ unlike the Antichrists. And all three of those words have the same root word, which means anointed one, anointing, etc. 
But John's really main point, and for us is, since we have this knowledge of Jesus through God's word, we can take hold of what he's promised us, and that is eternal life. Since Jesus is the anointed one, and we can have the knowledge to obey him, we can take hold of the blessings he's offered. So anointing is a big deal in the Bible, and it should be a big deal for us. God has proven to us that Jesus is the ultimate anointed one, God's Messiah, the Lord who came to save the world from its sin, and his invitation stands today. We can rise above the world and the confusion and all the doubt that's out there and be anointed, if you will, with knowledge from God through his word. And when we obey him, we will be blessed. This ultimate anointed one who came died on the cross for our sins. He blesses us every day. He seeks to commune with us and have us be forgiven in the presence of God for eternity. And that's the blessing of Jesus being the ultimate anointed one. He came, he fulfilled God's purpose for his life, and now we can be blessed because of it. The question tonight is, are you fulfilling God's purpose for your life today? Is there areas in your life where you know you're not doing what you should do, or maybe you are uh, doing some things you shouldn't be doing? Today is the day to change that. Jesus has proved over and over again that he is who he says he is, that he is here to save us, that he died to save us, and we can take hold of that blessing today. So now when you hear that word anointing, when you talk about Jesus being the Christ, I hope we have a little bit a better understanding of what that means and why it's so important. It changes the world, it changed history, and it ought to change our lives. If you have a need to come forward to put Christ, the anointed one, on in baptism, today's the day to do that. Maybe there's something you need to confess, something you need prayers for, We'd like to help you if you come and sing, come as we sing this song.